Hello, and welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Uh, my name's Seb Rose, uh, I'm part of Cucumber Limited, uh, and today I'm talking to Henry Coles, who is uh, the infamous creator of PyTest, uh, and we're going to be talking, therefore, about mutation testing. Um, Henry, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Seb. So, how are you doing? I am doing well. That's excellent. Um Maybe I should tell our listeners that Henry has threatened to answer all questions monosyllabically. So uh, I'm going to see if I can draw him out ever so slightly. You're listening to this, I hope, because you're interested in mutation testing. Um, But there's a chance that some of you might not know what mutation testing is. And I can't think of anyone better or anyone I'd rather ask to explain uh, briefly and concisely what mutation testing is than Henry Coles pretending to work in a monosyllabic way. So Henry, what is mutation testing? That's very hard to answer in a monosyllabic way, so maybe I'll expand slightly. Excellent. So mutation testing um, is a, it's a form of code coverage. So your traditional code coverage techniques, they basically stick probes into your code and they see from this test, does it execute this bit of code over here? that bit of code over there. And there's lots of different types. You've got basic um, line coverage, how many lines are executed, statement coverage, statements, branch coverage, which branches have you, have you been down. But they all have the sort of same fundamental flaw, which is all the measuring is which code has been executed by your tests. Now, executing code and testing code are not the same thing. You have to execute code in order to test it, but just because you've executed it does not mean you've actually tested it. If you haven't executed it, you've definitely not tested it. Uh, but if you have executed it, you may have tested it, you may not have done. So mutation testing solves this problem um, quite neatly um, by introducing um, bugs. So what it does is it deliberately um, introduces bugs into the code. It runs the test, and it checks that when that bug is present, at least one of the tests um, fails. So then you know for certain that your um, test suite can detect bugs, at least bugs of that type, in that location. Um, so in this way, it produces a very strong form of coverage. It's sort of considered in academia to be the gold standard, which they measure all the other forms of coverage against. So it's interesting that you mentioned academia there. So we've been running this podcast for quite a, a lot of months, and academia doesn't get mentioned very often. I think Nat Price mentioned it when he was talking about uh, property-based testing, for obvious reasons. Um, are, you, are you an academic, Henry? I am not an academic. Okay, so where were your, how did your interest in mutation testing get sparked? Because I'm very easily bored. So I, quite a few years ago now, I've actually lost track, it must be seven, eight years ago, I was not overly engaged in what I was doing. At the same time, I was working with a um, legacy code base, which say so the tests were interesting, as was the code. So I had a problem of understanding if any of the tests really um, did anything useful. So I looked around and had this amazing idea about introducing um, bugs into the code, and I thought, wow, aren't I great? And then found out that actually back in sort of 1970, someone else had already thought of it, and there'd been decades of research into this idea, and it had a name, which was, of course, uh, mutation testing. So I had a look around and saw you know, what people have been doing with this, and the answer seemed to be not a huge amount. There were some academic tools, which were largely unusable, and then one or two open source tools, which were... Most of them, again, unusable, but there's one called um, Jumble, which seemed to work reasonably well. So I used that for a while, then got a bit frustrated with it. Um, so I thought, well, this is an interesting problem. Could I do any better? 
So I had um, another code base I'd been playing with in my spare time, which I called uh, Parallel Isolated Test. So this was trying to solve another problem we had with that legacy code base, which was lots of the tests, the unit tests were not unit tests in any sort of um, modern sense of the world. Um, so they interfered with each other, lots of problems with static state clashing. So this was a, a test run that was designed to isolate all that static state so you could run these tests in parallel and speed up what was quite a, a slow test suite without having to solve some of the fun, fundamental problems with the code. So I took that code base, which did something to do with testing, but not really to do with mutation testing, and had a bit of a play and threw a few ideas and then about other things, about different ways of writing code, and I had lots lots of fun. And at the end of it all, I had a mutation testing system which seemed to work a lot better than the ones that had been there before. And then some number of years later, it's been, well, for mutation testing system, very widely used. I think it's one of the most widely used mutation testing systems in the world, which unfortunately isn't saying that much, it's still quite niche. <laughs> okay. Well, so uh, what platforms... To, so let's let's uh, make sure that everyone knows which one we're talking about. So this one is still called Parallel Isolated Testing. So it goes under two names, right. um, PIT, which stands for, or stood for, Parallel Isolated Test, and PyTest, which also stood for Parallel Isolated Test. I never really got to choose between the two. Uh, but was, it's not a parallel isolated testing library, so it's it's a it's classic not. naming issue. Okay, I like that. I've been working with you for uh, and using PyTest for a number of years, and I had never realised that it was to do the parallel isolating testing. So there you go. I thought you it was because you created it when you were in the pits or something like that. Good pun, said, but no. No. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, PyTest. Tell us a bit about PyTest. Um, you say it's the one, one of, if not the most uh, widely used mutation testing libraries um, in the world. What, uh, what platforms does it run on? Why has it been a success? So, it runs um, on the, the JVM. So, it's um, mainly for Java. Um, it will sort of work with other JVM languages to a degree, um, but your experience will not be wonderful. I think the best support for a non-Java language seems to be for Kotlin, uh, which is entirely accidental. It's just the way that the that language happens to compile down to, to bytecode, which is the level at which um, PyTest works. It's a, a bytecode uh, mutator. Um, so that is what it does. Obviously, Java is a popular language. So it has um, a lot of people out there, a lot of test cases. I think the reason it's been sort of successful where others haven't um, is it's a lot faster. So I occasionally do conference talks. I have a little spiel about looking at how we might approach the problem of mutation testing. Um, so if you imagine you want to put some bugs into some code, so you can do two or three a line. You want to detect them. So to solve that problem, you'd have to run the test suite. So you look at some sort of um, common Java product like Joda Time. I forget all the numbers here, but it takes a number of seconds to run the test suite for Joda Time. It's got a number of thousand lines of code. You do all the maths, and you'll come out with running the test suite enough times to um, try to detect, say, 10,000 mutants, it, it, it's about two days of processing um, effort, which is clearly you know, unfeasible. Um, but PyTest is a bit clever than that. It doesn't take this brute force approach, which was the approach that many of the early sort of systems did take. So instead of just blindly running this test suite against every um, inserted fault, the first thing it does is to generate a map of which tests execute which line of code. So then when it comes to um, trying to detect the mutants, um, since the test suite can detect the mutants, instead of running the whole test suite, it just runs a very small subset, usually one or two tests per mutant. So this speeds things up hugely. On top of that, um, it's, as I mentioned before, it's a bytecode manipulator. 
manipulator. So the, the traditional way to do mutation testing system was to change the source code, run the compiler, take the program that came out, launch it, run the test suite, etc., etc., which is, again, very um, expensive. So what PyTest does is it runs the compiler once, just with the, um, the normal code, and then it changes the generated bytecode, which is a very fast operation. You can do hundreds of thousand mutants in you know, sub-second time this way. And it also avoids having to launch um, the program as many times, because it, it can do some information in memory in a running program. So combining these two um, sort of techniques and lots of other little heuristics and things that have been added over the years, it can take something which has taken about two days to mutate before and do it in about three minutes. Pretty impressive. So why aren't all Java um, organizations using PyTest, or, or are they? Um, I don't believe that all organizations are, oh, but an increasing number are. Okay. It is a shame, yes. It's a... So I mean, what, sort of, what sort of penetration do you think you have in the marketplace? I mean, I, I know you've got some, you've got some fairly um, high-profile people that are using it who you may want to, I don't know if you want to drop any names, but, but what, is it, what benefits are they getting and what do you think stopping, what problems would other people experience if they wanted to just pick up PyTest and use it on their code base? There's various sorts of problems. Um, that's what sort of the traditional problem. So, so this, this idea goes back to the 70s, but never haven't really had much traction. And the traditional reasons that's been sort of explained why no one uses mutation testing has been the computational cost, which is certainly a real problem. And but as we've seen, you can deal with that. So you know, real code bases now, you can mutate the whole thing in you know, a small number of minutes. Large code bases, the super problems. We'll get to that probably later on. Um, the other sort of traditional um, objection to um, using mutation testing has been a thing called equivalent mutants. So if you change a bit of the code, I mean, I haven't given any examples yet on you know, what these mutants look like, but a very, they're usually very small changes, things like changing a greater than sign to a less than sign, um, removing a method call, this very small change to the code. But if you think about it for not too long, you can come up with examples of um, bits of code where you can change them in this way but actually the behavior doesn't meaningfully change. So I'm always bad at thinking of the logical examples, sort of the classical equivalent mutants, but the, the really simple to understand um, set would be things where it does maybe change the um, behavior of the program, but in a way which a, a unit test suite wouldn't usually detect, the classic one being performance. So you might have a performance optimization in there, you comment that line of code out, and actually in terms of inputs and outputs, the code behaves the same way as before, but um, actually, there is this sort of non-detectable um, difference between the mutant and the original program. And also, things where actually logically um, the behavior is the same and isn't, isn't even a performance or other sort of, um, sort of difference to go alongside it. So th this is sort of like false negatives or, or, or something that you have to In deal effect, with? Yes, In effect, yes, a false negative. So, yeah. you're, so, you're saying, so your mutation testing is saying that this here mutant um, can't be killed but actually, it's not a problem. Okay. So there's no way you can sort of automatically determine whether a mutant which hasn't been killed is an equivalent mutant or a regular surviving mutant. You can't run a computer at this and um, say, is this equivalent or not? It requires a human being understanding of all the semantics of the code to go in there and look at, look at these mutants and say, yes, this one matters, this one doesn't. This one matters, this one doesn't. Mm -hmm. Which is obviously very time-intensive. Say you have, a, I don't know, 100,000 mutants, and 10% of them um, survive, that's a lot of mutants to assess. Yeah. So the other reason, apart from the general performance, was this equivalent mutant problem. But what's sort of interesting is, because 
Once we actually started to use mutation testing in an industrial um, setting, not in academia, things didn't kind of work out how people expected. So a lot of the early papers, I think this is less true now, um, well, many of the early papers was on toy programs because it was so expensive they couldn't mutate more than 10 lines of code. Right. Then some better systems came along. Um, one which I should probably mention is a thing called Javalanche, which actually does a lot of things that PyTest does, but one year before PyTest, it sort of slipped through my radar. I never noticed it. Sorry, can you repeat um, its name? I didn't, I didn't catch that. Uh, Javalanche. Um, I probably pronounced that wrong. Okay. Um, but it's um, actually it was quite a similar system um, to PyTest in many ways and predates it by uh, one year. So they started looking at larger programs. But the way they did this was the way academics had to do it, which was we have this new tool we've developed. Let's go find a corpus of software out in the wild from SourceForge or GitHub, run it across it and see, see what the results look like. So if you try and take a mutation testing tool, apply it to an existing code base, which has been developed over five years with thousands of lines of code, thousands of tests, and then for the very first time you get all these results saying, hundreds of thousands of surviving mutants, it looks like a big problem, because it is. It'd be okay. very time-consuming to take all those mutants and go and assess them. But that's not what we do in software development. We don't wait until the end of the project, at least not in <laughs> Don't, don't we? <laughs> so, let, let's hope not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you know, this very sort of waterfall approach to applying mutation testing is some sort of separate, after-the-fact QA stage. I think sort of um, flavoured the thinking about, about what the problems were. In reality, what you do is you write a few lines of code, you run your tool, it tells you those few lines you just written, your tests were great, brilliant, move on. Oh, there's a problem here. Did I expect that? Um, no, I didn't. What's going on here? Ah, right, I missed this test case. Move on. So you've actually taken the um, information in small bytes as you develop, and probably crucially here is the person who's doing this is a developer, not some sort of QA person um, you know, many weeks or months after the fact. So the problem actually turns out not to be a problem because, yes, they do occur. I have to say, certainly the way PyTest designed mutation operators, they occur much less frequently than the academic literature um, suggests. But they do occur. But when they occur, actually, some of them are giving you useful information. For example, they might be telling you, this line of code here, it's actually it's never called. It's surviving because it's actually unreachable. Logically, the thing it's doing can't happen. So it's actually it's a marker which makes you look at the code and say, what's going on here? And sometimes what it's telling you is, oh, something really interesting has happened here. I've not understood what I've written. I've misunderstood something. So it's actually an additional piece of information that mutation gives you, sort of secondly um, to the information about how strong your test suite is, but very useful while you're developing. So actually, we probably haven't covered that, that the, the primary outcome of a, a mutation testing tool. So you sort of talked about the strength of your test suite. Um, so we've just, you've just discoursed about um, equivalent mutations and how they can give you false negatives. What happens during that development process if you get uh, a negative that isn't to do with um, an equivalent mutation? What, what's that actually telling the developers they go? Well, it will depend. So it's telling you one of um, several things. Mm -hmm. So most often, probably the most common case is you have a missing test case. Right. So say for, say for example, you've got a mutation which changes a, um, a less than to a less than equal or other way around. So if you have, so you might well have um, something which, say that's in a, an if statement. So you may well have tested what happens on um, if statement coming false, Coming true, both sides of the branch. 
but have you tested the boundary? And the answer might well be, no, I haven't. Yeah. And that mutation survival will say, oh, missing test case. So you'll add a test case. So that's probably the most common um, thing you'll do when you have a, a surviving mutant. Um, you might also end up deleting code. Um, often, so another common one you might see is you have a side effect, um, which isn't tested. So you, your code's been executed. It's called some void method. And what's that there for? Occasionally, be for no reason at all, I can delete some code. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the two things you mainly do, which are add test cases, delete code, which turns out to be redundant. And it can identify redundant code in a very sort of fine-grained way, much more so than static analysis can. Um, the other possibility is you have a faulty test. Mm -hmm. so you might have a test which you believe is testing something, you believe um, is asserting on something, but actually the test itself has a problem. Yeah. So the really sort of um, extreme example would be there is no asserting the test. Um, those things are quite rare. Um, well, should be quite rare, <laughs> but there might be, uh, but might be, you know, simple mistakes you've made. You've got an yeah. assertion which works in a way you didn't expect, or it, yeah. It, it, so the answer it will vary, but it's either it's usually add a test case, delete some code, or fix a test case. Okay. So, um, so we've got the we've got the, this tool that's going to give you confidence that your test suite is um, is good. It will um, occasionally flag up areas where there's equivalence and that might lead you to change the, I guess, the design of your code to try and remove that. You've got some large companies that are using it, but as you said, it's hard to introduce mutation testing on a large body of legacy code because just like a linter, if you started applying it, you'd get hundreds of thousands of errors being reported. So it's, it sounds like it's mostly applicable to greenfield uh, development, is is that? Do you think that's true, or have I made a, made a logical error here somewhere? I think that's that's fairish. I think so. It's certainly easiest to use on greenfield development. Um, if you look back to its history, though, I mean, it was first used on a legacy code base. Right. That's where that's where I what I wrote it for. Um, so it's entirely possible to work on a legacy code base. Just a bit harder, as it always is, with legacy code base and doing it with greenfield. So if if you're trying to introduce it for the first time somewhere, I'd suggest you do what I did, which is don't stick on the CI server and try and mutate the whole thing. Use it for changes. So if you're changing some existing code, then run it across that very small slice of the code base to start with and see what the tests look like. And you might then choose to fix or add tests before you make a change. Um, or if you're adding new code, then just run it across that new slice of code as you're adding it and just treat it like greenfield. Okay. And this way, it will add... In most of the value because you'll know that things you're touching you'll know what state they're in mm -hmm. and you'll know if you're making mistakes with the test suite okay so basically don't try and bite off more than you can chew or, or as they used to say in one company i worked in don't try to boil the ocean interesting phrase yes yeah, so yeah i shall so not be using that in future no it's, it's a financial company that used to use it uh, yes absolutely don't use it so um have you got any information from the people from anyone that has used PyTest as to what sort of value it's given them so is there any case studies about reduction in defects or increase in speed of delivery or any of these wonderful metrics that managers everywhere love i love metrics too seb and i have none at all all i have is um anecdotal experience i've got lovely little quotes from companies i think sky's one of the big early adopters mm -hmm. saying this is great but in terms of figures to say everything is better I don't have them, yeah. um, and Charles, I think again, that kind of comes from the sort of top-down thinking, which um, 
person I'm a little bit dubious of. So it's a tool, and it's a tool for developers. So the people who know if it's useful will be the developers. Um, it's not really, it's not a tool for management. It's not a well. You can try to use it as a, a metric, and mm -hmm. obviously people will give them something which measures something. They will try and set targets to measure, which is as destructive from mutation testing as it is with any other type of um, metric. So you shouldn't be needing to say to a manager, well, oh, this is great, can I use it? You should be saying to yourself, I'm going to write some code, what can I do to make that better? So it shouldn't have a, a cost because it's a tool you're using to make your job easier. So I guess that, that draws us then on the question about the, the places that don't use it. Do they? Do you think that we ha you haven't, or the the community hasn't made the case that it will make their life better? Have you had any counter arguments about how it's superfluous or takes too much time or doesn't deliver any value? Is there? Do you have any experience with that? Um, I do. Yes. So you, you occasionally find blog posts of people. I've I've tried this and it said my tests were good. Therefore, it is of no use. Um, I think that's kind of missing the point because. Um, if it tells you your tests are good, that's great. Because before you maybe thought your tests were good, now you know your tests are good. So, okay, you can argue about whether it was worth the um, amount of personal time you might have spent to discover that. Once you've actually used it, it's generally fairly easy. I tend to maybe code for like half an hour or get to a point where I think, oh, this is quite good, I've, I've finished, I've done it. Depending on the size of code I've um, produced in that time, it might take it, you know, 10 seconds to run, it might take it five minutes if it's been of a large code base, which has to go get a coffee, come back. So the cost, if you were in that way, is actually quite low, mm -hmm. um, apart from the cost of learning how to use the tool, etc. Um, the benefit, I'm personally convinced on, other people won't be, but some people don't think testing works. So, yeah, and their opinion isn't necessarily wrong. Maybe for them, whatever workflow they have is just wonderful for the context they work in. But if you find value in knowing that your tests are good, and you find value in having something which will relentlessly give you feedback on your code, which you might not like, then, well, that, that's that's the case for it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, do you, are there any domains or are there any people or organizations where, that you would recommend not to try mutation testing? So are there any places where it just doesn't work? <laughs> I think if you have a system where you have lots of um, logic, which then protects a line of code that does something like email all our secrets to our competitors or destroy our production systems or any other thing guarded by if statements, I really wouldn't use it because it might move that if statement and run that um, awful code. So I think it's people everywhere unless you have the sort of code base which have this, these horrors inside it, in which case, don't. Okay, so basically it's, it's, generally, it's generally useful and generally usable. Um, yes, I mean, I'll, I'll probably maybe caveat that. It's... It's most useful when you have logic. Okay. So if your code base is just punting data around, it's all glue code, then, well, I mean, the sort of tests you're writing are probably better being a higher level than unit tests anyway, mm -hmm. and you're probably not going to get a lot of benefit out of measuring the, um, the mutation coverage. Okay. But if you have logic, it's, it's helpful. So, I mean, I guess if there's a lot of boilerplate code being generated behind the scenes, it, is it going to cause problems there in the, in the sense that you don't control that code that's been generated anyway. Um, it doesn't cause problems. So if you understand that you have boilerplate code, which I don't expect to be tested, mm -hmm. testable, then you simply ignore any um, defects seeds in there. And you can 
to a degree you can configure it not to to see the mutations in the first place because you know if again if you're trying to apply um, some sort of target or metric and I've got X mutation score this would be a problem but if you're using it as a tool I've written some code what's that code look like then these things don't really cause an issue okay so I mean uh, PyTest works with uh, Java or at least on the JVM and you said mainly with Java now Java's got at least uh, you know it's got JUnit which is often used and there are some other um, popular unit testing frameworks is is PyTest ag agnostic about the unit testing framework or does it have you needed to bear that in mind when you've created it? It, it needs to care so there's, there's things about PyTest I don't like and one of them is the sort of it gets really into the guts of the the testing framework it works with this is for reasons of efficiency so it works at the moment with um, JUnit and TestNG um, which covers about 99% of the Java space I think there are one or two other test runners out there, but they're not not widely used. Um, but it does have to understand them at quite a uh, in-depth um, level. So I'd like that not to be the case, and I may look at changing that in the future. That would probably result in it running a bit more slowly. Okay. What about? I mean, you said that it kind of works with Kotlin, but you won't get as good information. There are obviously other JVM languages out there, and they all share the same bytecode. What, what are the issues about um, having it work nicely, uh, play nicely with other JVM languages? So issues what I call junk mutations. So Java um, actually maps quite sort of um, clearly to the bytecode. You can sort of, an if statement will be a jump, it's very obvious, a loop will be a jump. And pretty much anything that appears in the bytecode will be something which the developer has written some source code which creates that. You get to the, sort of the more advanced languages like Scala, that's no longer true. The compiler produces huge swathes of scaffolding code to support its sort of high-level features, which don't map directly to anything the program has written. So if you start to mutate that bytecode, there's nothing the program can do to... Um, well, the program would have to basically be writing tests to check the, the Scala compiler features worked in order to kill those mutations. So it, it's, it's not valuable information. So Scala, there's quite a big gap between the bytecode and um, what the program writes. Kotlin, um, less large, and it seems to work reasonably well with that, although I haven't dug into this enough to understand the, where the cases where it doesn't work are, and there certainly will be some. So the problem really is that identifying things produced by the compiler rather than the programmer. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question now that, uh, that you'll know why I'm going to ask it to you. And you're not possibly going to be very happy about answering, but let's try it anyway, which is, so here we are. Uh, PyTest is an absolutely awesome tool. I've used it. I love it. Uh, on the JVM supporting Java. Uh, although Java is a very broadly, widely used language, there are others in the world that are also widely used. And I'm thinking mainly about C-sharp and .NET. Why do you think that there is a tool on the .NET framework that sort of uh, works in the same way, to the same level of um, effectiveness as PyTest does on JVM? And if not, why not? Um, well, so I think you're probably fairly well aware, Seb, um, there is not a tool for the .NET platform with the level of maturity of PyTest. There have been, there have been several, I think, um, what's a visual... Visual Mutator, there's Cream, Ninja Turtles, and probably others, um, all of which are, if not abandoned, then certainly not well-maintained. And um, yes, they, they don't work as well by quite a large margin. 
As to why that is, I'm not really qualified to say. I've not written .NET for probably 10 years now. Um, so I can't really tell you why it is that it's hard to write it on that platform. I guess the non-open nature of .NET might be part of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sorry, I, someone in the .NET community could probably give a better answer than I could. Okay. Um, I mean, within the, the Java community, how, how big is your team that works on PyTest? My team? Yeah. Well, we, we meet regularly, Sev. It's a... <laughs> So the team consists of um, largely me, but that's well, that isn't really true. So myself and some regular contributors. Um, so Phil Glover um, produced a, a Clips plugin, um, which he maintains. Um, Martin, I have to pronounce his name on there, um, does a Gradle plugin. And there's various other people who have over the years contributed um, regularly and often, and I'm very grateful for them. And a number of sort of um, lesser contributions from other people, or not lesser, less frequent contributions from from other people. But it's it's not a large team. Mm. Um, it's quite a niche tool, and unfortunately, my time's been less and less available to work on it. So I've not been wonderful at community building. Um, but yes, it's so it's a bunch of random strangers. We seem to be doing okay. Okay, uh, that that's that's encouraging. I'm glad to to hear that it's still you know you still got some people supporting you even if if you're you're the main contributor to to that particular the main code base. Um, along the you know you talked about it being a niche tool uh, and whether that's a good thing or, or whether that's a good description or not. I mean, I guess it depends, but it's certainly it's not hugely widely adopted throughout the industry. There are other sorts of um, nicheness that end with the test word one of them that you know that we talked about recently on this podcast was property-based testing i wonder do you think there's any is there any relationship between mutation testing and property-based testing okay ask that question actually quite a lot oh, good. um and i'd say not really no um so mutation testing is testing your tests property-based testing is well depending on how you choose to view it it's either generating tests or it's searching for unknown unknowns mm -hmm. um so though both of them might end up with you finding a problem in the code there's not it's not really they're not really very similar they're doing sort of fundamentally different things um, one of them's trying to basically test your code the one's trying to test your tests so not a lot of overlap though since i've got opportunity i'll give it a plug we also have a property-based testing um system for java called quick theories um which I'm sure maybe I'll put a link out at the end of the Absolutely, podcast. Absolutely, yeah, please. Um, we'd love to get some feedback on. It's um, not hugely widely used yet. Um, we've not been, done a lot of dog food on it so far, but we'd like to put more time into it and improve it. Who is we in this situation? Uh, so we. So if you mentioned at the start, I work for NCR in Edinburgh. So I shall mention now we are hiring. We are always hiring because we're expanding rapidly. So come work with us. It's great here. Um, so this... Um, the property-based testing system, Quick Theories, uh, was a part of our graduate training scheme. We have a slightly different way of doing things here. We've got, if someone comes on new, we like to put them with a more sort of grizzled, worn-in member of staff, which is usually me, <laughs> and work on something interesting um, to basically you know, hone our skills and hopefully do something nice at the end of it. And Quick Theories was one of those projects. Okay, and so that's been open-sourced and it's available for people to, to play around with? Yes. Excellent. And does that compare with? Uh, how do you compare that with uh, QuickCheck and the other, the, the other well-known property-based testing tools that are knocking about in the marketplace? Well, the big difference is it's for Java uh -huh. um, compared to, to QuickCheck. Um, it's so design goals were 
onto something to do with Java, not tied to JNIT or TestNG, so be independent but usable with both. Want to be able to get repeatable builds, which obviously a bit of a it's one of the sort of strange things when counting property-based testing for the first time is the randomness. So wanted to allow randomness, but to make it easily repeatable, mm -hmm. so you could freeze it for a moment. Want to support some um, shrinking, which many of the quick um, check clones don't support. They just do the the random part um, and give it a nice sort of functional API um, working with Java 8. Um, so achieved all those things. We might have a bit of a play of how shrinking works based on some input from um, Guy Hypothesis. He has a different way of approaching things, which if it works out for us would be a lot nicer because I won't get into the details here, but yeah, make, supporting nicely composable generators with shrinking proved to be uh, very difficult. So we don't like the how the API works for that part. So we might revisit it. Okay, so more things, more things to come on on that particular front. So what, what's your next project for the next batch of uh, young, impressionable, ready to be abused uh, intakes for NCR? Uh, I'm, as it happens, currently thinking about that. It may well be looking at that shrinking problem for um, for quick theories, or it might be something else. We we like to well, let's ask them what they'd like to do as well. So. Yeah, maybe they'll tell me. Okay, well that would be interesting. And uh, in in your life at NCR, what what else? You know, you you obviously got a focus on development. Uh, you're working in the technical community there, but do you have broader interests? You know, both with the, in NCR and you know in the community around Edinburgh and beyond. Yeah. So, um, well, I'm not quite sure what the question means, but I'll just talk for a bit. That's good. Um, so. <laughs> So also organise the um, local jug. So we're in the Java Views Group, which meets here in NCR, because we have a we have a nice space for that. Um, Organised a few other things. We had um, was it a year or so ago, we had a called it almost functional. So we pulled in lots of um, speakers from academia, the functional world, and just brought them in to talk about things which would be interesting for uh, industry developers. Sort of a bit of a a clash of worlds. Um, we're hopefully going to be hosting. I think Brian Marek's got a, a tests and types um, sort of workshop he'd like to organise, which we're bringing here to Edinburgh. It's the natural place. We're infested with type theorists, and obviously everyone wants to come to Edinburgh. So hopefully we'll be having that coming soon. Um, that's probably about it. No, fair enough. So there's quite a lot going on. I mean, it, it's interesting uh, to to see how many things you can bring to Edinburgh. Uh, and then link the word academia or academic to it, uh, despite the fact that you started off when I asked you whether you're an academic, to say you weren't. Do you? I mean, do you think that there's the the developer, the practitioner community uh, has a lot that they could learn from the academics, and that you know we should do something about that? Um, I think well, I think there's lots to learn both ways. Um, actually, I was in Tokyo a few months mm -hmm. ago. I've got um, to, that's my first academic conference since I was a actually I did start a PhD set but as a I started as a materials engineer okay. um, and then dropped out and it ended up doing this so so that's my first academic conference for oof, 20 years maybe and so this was the I forget the full title now software verification and testing conference um, in Tokyo I was there um, to talk at the um, mutation testing um, sort of workshop so I met lots of academics who are an interesting bunch with a completely different way of thinking about things from um, how industry developers um, and industry people work. So lots of really interesting stuff there, lots of rigor, all the statistical backup for things they say, which I just 
I make things up, I give it a try, and say, yeah, that seems like it works, and I'll go with that. Obviously, academia, you have lots of stats and things behind it, which interestingly, from reading the papers, can be equally as misleading and wrong as the, um, the, gut, the gut approach, but it's obviously a very valid, different approach, which will usually result in better answers. Uh, but they also have a lot to learn from us. Um, I think one of the reasons that mutation testing tools haven't been used in industry for that since 1970 is that the tools have been awful. They've been very clever, they've had interesting ideas, but they've just failed to do really basic things like integrate with build tools or give repeatable results or you know, things which, as an industry, we know are important and this information is lacking or simply not cared about. I think part of the way that you know, people get funded and you know, what they're rewarded for as an academic isn't producing usable tools. But there's clearly a lot of scope for um, information to flow both ways mm -hmm. to make both communities better. And I think that's a wonderful thing to start trying to do. Do you have any um, suggestions about how we might do that? Because, you know, obviously academics have been around for a long time. People have been writing computer, softwares for, uh, computer software for money for a long time. And we don't, you know, we don't historically talk to each other very much. Um, I guess conferences where both sets of people talk would be one way to do it. Um, <laughs> so I think you know where we're leaving here. So yes, there, you're right. There, there is the XP conference, but the XP conference, which which has been running since what ninety nine or two thousand, doesn't appear to have um, doesn't appear to have done much to help there in the sense that. You know, most of the people that will be listening to this uh, to this podcast won't have heard of the XP conference. Certainly, uh, most people don't go to the XP conference. And actually, having been to several and organised one, I wonder quite how much interchange there is between academics and practitioners, even if you put them in the same building and make them get drunk together. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair comment. I don't remember speaking to many academics, apart from the ones that said to me, oh, you did PyTest, thank you. And that was really my interaction with them. So it wasn't, yeah, not a lot of information flowed either direction, really. Um, can I solve this problem with some wonderful suggestions? I don't think I can, Seb. Okay. Um, I guess on the academic side, well, things that, things that block me from um, you know, using information in the, in the academic community have been paywalls, academic papers. That's just awful. Yes. I'll often find... Um, going to Google Scholar, I'm, I'm quoted by name, and I can't even read what it says. This is uh, this is ridiculous, but this is how things have certainly been. Um, I understand they're meant to be improving due to some changes in how the fundings are working, um, but this is a big problem, which on the academic side has to be be dealt with. Um, apart from that, I guess opportunities to meet together and talk would be a good way to do it. But what those opportunities are, how you set that up, I have no idea. Yeah, but I think it's it, it. I feel that challenge as well. It it seems quite difficult. There are various people who make that uh, make that bridge or, or do things there to try and move that knowledge across. So you've definitely been one of them because you know when I've talked to you about in the past about mutation testing, you've been able to point to papers where you've picked up techniques that various academics have tried. They've never fully implemented them or applied them in a way that people could use. But PyTest, I mean, would you? How much of the the the, um, oh, the the advances that PyTest embodies, uh, do you think you invented yourself, and how many of them did you uh, find in academic papers that you went you went and sought out? So, I think most of them I reinvented myself. So I mentioned uh, Java Lunch earlier. So, at that point in time, I was looking around to see what 
systems were out there, and I'd basically start got to the point where I'd looked at a few academic ones and realised they were all awful. So I just started discounting them. I actually saw the name Java Lunch when I was developing PyTest. Thought, oh, University of Sutherland, it's going to be awful. I didn't look any further because I simply assumed it wasn't going to work very well. Right. Um, I was completely wrong. It turns out that um, the, the, you know, the fundamental thing that makes PyTest fast is this coverage mapping, uh, so coverage targeting of the test. And they they did that first. I later found out that um, actually the author of the um, Jumbo tool which I was using had um, proposed the idea of, of coverage targeting in a say academic paper. I think it was written in industry but published in an academic journal but never implemented. So the idea was there from it's implemented a year before I implemented it. It was suggested a number of years before I thought of it, but I invented it separately. Well done me. Had I known where to look, I could have saved myself some time. Um, so most most of the things in PyTest are, are the same way, I think. Um, they're ideas which I either independently discovered or in some cases copied from existing open source systems such as as Jumble. To date, not much of it has come back in papers, but I think that's starting to change. So the, the really interesting research that um, I keep reading is about a thing called muta uh, mutant sub <coughs> subsumption, which is looking at which mutants effectively um, you don't need because another mutant would be detected by um, the same test, either um, in a sort of purely logical um, way or in a it happens that way in practice way, sort of the empirical. Uh, so that's an area which I keep wanting to have time to really look at the operators that PyTest has and use this information from the papers with all statistics to back it up to, to improve the system. So certainly plenty there for me to mine, it's just having the chance to mine it uh, and to implement it. So actually, where I was kind of hoping for a different answer, which is to say, yeah, you've got lots of learning out of academic papers, but in fact what you've, you've actually been through and invented the same techniques from first principles in many cases and then found that they'd already been discovered when you went back to the academia. So does that say something about the searchability of academic papers or just the the ease of finding information? I think it does, yes. Um, getting the sort of conclusions of paper, you have to, if you can access it at all, which isn't guaranteed, you have to read through. Some of them are incomprehensible. Mm. I've just since discovered, I used to think this because I was very, very stupid, which is still true, <laughs> but it's also because a subset of the... Some of the papers are, in fact, just total garbage, which you have to learn to detect those ones and to, to ignore them. But in, in the ones that rubbish um, are really, really good ideas and really good papers. It's just learning how to find them and extract the information you can use from them. Okay, well, um, I don't think I have any more questions about uh, mutation testing. I think well, we've certainly covered a, a lot of it. There are loads of, I mean, you've did given a, a number of conference talks about mutation testing. We've, we've run workshops together. Some of them, these things are on video, I guess, that people can, can go and dig out if they want to. Actually, very few of my talks seem to make it to video for some reason. Uh, that's, uh, it's probably because you, you're, um, you are just too appealing and people just keep looking at you or something like that. That's probably, probably it. it. Well, look, Henry, thank you very much for, for come, spending time coming along and talking to us. Uh, it, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope it's been fun for you. And I hope everyone who's been watching and listening along enjoyed it too. We'll post a bundle of links uh, re relating to some of the, the tools that you mentioned on the site when this uh, podcast goes live. But for now, thank you very much for coming along. And goodbye. It's okay. Goodbye, Seb.